Hey there, my dear Thoughtvolutionists. What are you up to on this fine day? How are you keeping your body and mind occupied? For many of us, it is hard not to be distracted by our phones, the constant noise, the pressure to conform and perform. Some of us only seem to be able to fully function with that extra cup of coffee in the morning, a daily dose of alcohol, a pack of cigarettes or other substances that are considered legal or illegal just to numb pain, ease social anxiety, or make it through another day. What may start as a distraction often quickly turns into a habit and over time into a full-fledged addiction. I know that we tend to throw around the expression that we are hooked on something, like it's no big deal. I'm hooked on this new TV show. This food really has me hooked, etc. For my guest Dallas, drugs used to be a huge deal. He was hooked on crystal meth, a drug that altered and completely took hold of his life, leading him down an extremely dark road of jail time, prostitution, losing his home, his job, and his two kids. There were occasional episodes of recovery, followed by dreaded and feared stretches of relapse. His drug use started when Dallas was 39, after he had just received his doctorate degree and while he was working as a college professor and marketing professional for a law school. He says that his external accomplishments were only a distraction from the war that was going on inside of him. A war with himself about the deeply rooted desire to belong and be accepted just as he was. Instead of finally finding that acceptance when he came to terms with his sexuality and eventually came out as gay, he felt even more ostracized and judged by the gay community, causing the shame and drug use spiral to run deeper and deeper. During one of his never-ending internal battles, Dallas saw an old tree and said to himself, Look at that decaying tree. This is what you have to do. Every part of you must die and become something new. But how do you kill that sick part of yourself without losing the essence of what makes you, you? Dallas's story is one about healing, about failing time and time again, and nevertheless getting back up every single time. He's sharing very personal details about his journey in hopes that you, my dear Thoughtvolutionist, develop empathy and compassion for an addict you might know. An addict who may get to a certain point of success just to then relapse again. Or perhaps you are someone in recovery right now and see this cycle in your own life. Instead of shaming yourself, consider relapse as an indicator for where you still need to focus. Friends, life is about growth, constant learning and overcoming. Even a decaying tree can turn into something beautiful when somebody takes time to reimagine what is possible. So let's shed old thoughts, evolve a little bit together, and grow a new branch of compassion and understanding as we listen to Dallas's story. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about drug addiction, drug use, mental illness, prostitution, suicidal ideation, depression, HIV AIDS, as well as self-doubt and homophobia. If any of these subjects are triggered to you, 
please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Hi, Dallas. Thank you so much for driving all the way from Charlotte, North Carolina to meet me here in my little studio in South Carolina. I want to applaud you for being so open about your journey and everything that you experienced. But before we dive into a whole lot of darkness that was eventually, finally, shattered by a whole lot of light, let me ask you about something beautiful. What would you say was the nicest thing somebody did for you within the last few months that you still remember very fondly? Something that has been one of the nicest things that anyone has said to me is a conversation I had with my son, a random conversation where he was talking about that he was glad that I was his father and just randomly said this to me in the kitchen. And he, meanwhile, was talking about getting a car. And I said, you know, if you had a different father, a different father would have the means to purchase a car for you. And he said, well, what's more important than outward wealth is the internal wealth you've given me. And I was just thrown back because this is not something that usually comes from him. And I just... I was silent and stared for a while and I just hugged him and I just felt like once in my life, I felt like I was doing something right. Every story has an origin. And if you don't mind, can you take us back to your childhood? What was it like growing up in your family? So I grew up in Southern West Virginia and very rural county. It's a county that still to this day doesn't have a traffic light. (laughs) My parents were teenagers. I was unexpected. And in two vastly different sides of the coin. So my mom's family were devout Pentecostals, very Southern, strict, religious. And then my father's side was the complete opposite. They were, quote unquote, like hell raising. And I grew up in such vast dichotomies that I didn't know which one to adhere to. And uh, early on, I just found myself wondering where I belonged. And then my dad joined the military early, and we took off into the coastal areas of North Carolina, and he would be gone for months at a time uh, on leave on ships. And so my mom was very young, and looking back, I don't think she knew, you know, she was trying to figure out who she was, and she was a kid raising kids. And so... I grew up in trailer parks and we moved around a lot, never really had friends and still trying to figure out, did I want to be a church going kid or did I want to drink and smoke and fight and cuss? (laughs) Which did I, which area did I fall into? And I think with dad not being around very often, I started to adhere to what my, you know, my mom's side of the family and adhere to those values my father had cancer early in his life, in his uh, mid-20s, had a huge brain tumor, and so he had to leave the, the military and move back to West Virginia. And at that point, he still wasn't around mentally because he was so sick for a long time. And I started going to church with mom, and um, that's when I really started to lean into the Pentecostal church kind of strict guidelines and rules and in speaking in tongues and all of that stuff. And so that's when I started to try to get closer to my mom. 
Eventually, you noticed something was different about you. And we will talk later on about you owning the desire to be accepted, just as you are. But how did that feeling of being different, perhaps even deep down already knowing that you were gay, how did that influence those early formative years of yours? So early on, uh, one of my earliest memories was I was pretending in a room by myself that I was on a stage performing. And I had this crowd and I was on my tiptoes pretending I was on high heels and just giving it my all, just performing, right? And my mom walked in the room and just began to totally ridicule me. You know, stop acting like a girl, get off your tiptoes. What are you doing? Don't do that anymore, that kind of thing. And that's the earliest I remember feeling abnormal and receiving the message that I needed to hide who I really was and that I couldn't really be myself and that my true nature was to be hidden. So that coupled along with when my father did get well, he was disabled from the military and wasn't working. And so then we were around each other 100% of the time. I would hear messages from him that I must not really be his son because I didn't act like him. And I wasn't a true quote unquote brag, which is our last name, because I didn't raise hell. I I didn't drink, you know, because I told you I had adhered to my mother's side because that's what felt safer. But he would, you know, make comments like that. And then he had a younger brother who was my age. So I had an uncle my age. And he would invite him along to our family outings, saying to me that he was like the son he never had. So those two messages together told me that I just wasn't normal, quote unquote. And so I just, I didn't know how to act. So behind closed doors, I would dance around and and try to pretend and be myself. But when I was with my family, I didn't know who I was. I felt like a ghost in my own life. And then at church, you know, I started hearing the, the, the messages about gay people. And then I would hear it with my mom's family and my dad's family, both, that different messages, but they were still saying that gay people were wrong, quote unquote. They were either going to hell or they were gross. And so that's what I heard. I'm going to hell and I'm gross. And so still messages of you don't belong and you can't be yourself. And that's, you know, those those were the prevailing stories that I began to accept as truth. Now you have two amazing kids, Liliana and Jonah. Well, they're not technically kids anymore, but I'm sure they will forever be your babies. I assume those kids came out of a heterosexual relationship. Can you tell us a bit about that? So I've actually been married twice to two women. The first was my high school best friend. And as graduation approached, knowing that I was gay, which I had gone up to the altar at church many times, to get, quote unquote, you know, rededicated, resaved, because I would commit to, to not having the thoughts and then 
you know, several weeks later, I would have the thoughts. And I was a teenager in the days before cell phones or internet. So my outlet was a men's health magazine subscription that I got, that I was able to get through something. But, you know, that, that was going in a cycle. And so as graduation got near, I knew that I was going to be in an adult world. And it scared me because I didn't trust myself and I didn't know what was going to happen. And so it felt very safe when this, my best friend who was a female started to like me back, to like me and have feelings for me that we would get married. Plus, you know, it was so looked down on to live together without being married in that area and also that day and age. And so it, it just made sense for us to get married. We got married. It only lasted just a few years. You know, we were only friends and so young. At the time, I had secretly enrolled in Homosexuals Anonymous and talked to someone on the phone who told me that if I would go through these 12 steps, I wouldn't be gay anymore. (laughs) I would secretly get mail from them at my job because I didn't want her to know, but eventually... We got a computer. It was a dial-up, you know, one of those. And um, she saw what I was looking at, and I had to tell her about it. Still wanted to stay with me, still tried to work it out. I told her I was, you know, I revealed this 12 steps and everything. That marriage ended, and I immediately, within a couple of months, got married again. I met uh, another woman And we, you know, had, it it felt very safe and I did have feelings for her, but we dated for six weeks and, and got married. It was the safest thing I could think of because in between I was still, I was getting approached by men because I was, you know, I had effeminate tendencies you could tell that, you know, I guess you could tell that I was outwardly gay or whatever. So I was getting approached by men and it was very, very scary to me. So when this second lady I had feelings for me I jumped on it and we got married and then within the first month of getting married she gets pregnant and so to me it was okay good I am locked in now you know this is safe I am not going to ever leave this woman because we have a child together this is the answer for me and so for 12 years I dove into being their everything you know, I was the emotional, financial support. That's how I found my worth was that they needed me. I made it so that they needed me so bad. It was just such a codependent relationship for her and the kids. I just, I, that's how I could avoid what I was feeling. Because when I wasn't with them, it would be, I would be driving down the road and these voices in my head were so loud it would be images of men and just, it was kind of like, to me at the time, I said it was the devil, but they would be so loud that I have to turn the radio all the way up and scream at the top of my lungs to not hear these voices and this message that I was running from something and that I really wanted to be with a man. And so at some point I became suicidal and I had a plan because I just thought, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or hell. I don't know what's going on, but I can, I, all I know is I can't live like this. 
and I'm not doing my kids or my wife any good having this secret. And I eventually, the place that I worked, offered a free counseling session for a Christian counselor. And so I I went, and it was the first time I spilled everything out. I came out to this man and told him about my plans to commit suicide. And the next thing I know, I'm being rushed off to a mental facility. And I did check myself in, but I, I guess I didn't understand what he interpreted because I got in the mental facility, I, I got into the room, and the nurse came in. Such a, such a cold person. I don't, and, and she's reading from the file that, that, that the counselor wrote, and she said, so what's up with not knowing what your gender is, is what she said. And I immediately had a panic attack because it wasn't about my gender. It was, I was trying to confide in someone finally, you know, that I have feelings for men. And so I stayed in that facility for three days. At the end, to get out, I had to have a family meeting with my wife. And I told her at the time that I was having, quote, homosexual tendencies and asked her to pray with me. And that could we, you know, pray together and work this out so that we can, now that you know about it, can you help me pray them away? The only thing is, is that she never mentioned it again, and I never mentioned it again, because I guess we were both trying to avoid what we really already knew. And so time went on, and it was still the cycles. You know, I dove into degrees, you know, I went all the way through doctorate, my doctorate degree, I dove into taking care of them and totally tried to avoid dealing with with the issues. So you reached the peak of the mountain, the height of your career when you were 39 years old. At least that's what it would seem like for anyone looking from the outside in. But despite all of those successes, That time also marks the official beginning of your addiction journey, the time when you came out and accepted yourself as gay. First of all, what was that coming out experience like? And why do you think it made the spiral of your life run even deeper? When I finally reached the point of saying, instead of fighting this part of me, I'm going to accept it, it felt like I had finally found where I belonged. I wasted no time in leaving my wife. I, in retrospect, really handled that in a pretty unhealthy way, but I left quickly and dove right into what I thought was going to be the group and the the population where I could unleash myself and be everything that I you know, I could pretend to be on a stage <laughs> and not get judged for it. So it was different than that. I discovered Grinder, which is, you know, the, they call it a dating app, but it's basically a hookup app. And started to try to maneuver in the gay community. And it was not anything that I expected. There was still a sense of you still have to prove yourself. And why are you wearing that? And one of the first nights I was out, I was approached by 
a guy who knew me from friends, I guess, or knew my wife or something. And he said, what are you doing here? And he said, I guess you need to be saving money to hire a psychiatrist for your kids because what you've done has ruined their life. Why couldn't you have not pretended to be gay for at least, you know, 10 more years until they were out of high school? And I just left, you know, I just left the, the, the bar because I was like, this, how can this be? When I, in my mind, I expected to walk into a gay bar and be welcomed with open arms. You're here. You did it. Congratulations. You know, rainbows, flags, I don't know. But it was side eyes and it was just comments and no one spoke to me. And I didn't know what to do with that. And so that's when I went to Grinder because I could get immediate attention that way. And if someone would, would have sex with me, then that was the way I was going to get some type of approval and belonging. So I went on a rampage with that. You know, you know, I had waited all these years anyway to be with a man. And so I was like a kid in a candy store. So I, I finally met a man who seemed to accept me because the other part about what I faced when I would meet these guys on Grindr was I would hear feedback that I was too feminine. <laughs> and I thought, I've spent my entire life trying to hide and even going to the grocery store as a gay man was a different experience because I didn't have to think about how am I walking? How am I throwing my arm? How am I inflecting? But now, even now in the gay community, I was too feminine. And so he came along and we had a brief relationship where I became just totally engrossed in him. And it was very much an anxious attachment where I would stare at my phone all day and wait for him to text me and those kinds of things. That didn't last that long. And so I, again, felt like, well, what's next for me? Like, what, where do I fit? And one day I was on Grinder, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and this guy asked me if I partied. And as naive, I was very naive about this. I thought, well, yeah, like I was, had been drinking and, and things like that. So I thought it was a party. Like a Sunday afternoon, I envisioned like a cookout or a pool party or something. And I didn't realize that was code word for crystal meth in the gay community. Is if you party with a capital T, because T is the gay slang word for crystal meth. So I got to this house, very like overgrown yard. There were no cars. I was, thought I was at the wrong house. So I messed, you know, and I said, I think I'm at the wrong house. He goes, No, you're not. So I came to the door, very attractive. And so I just went in. There's nobody there, but, you know, a large screen with pornography going and all this, it, you know, the, what you would imagine a house that someone who regularly does meth lives in. And I was pretty confused, but I sat down with him and whatever. And so he hands me the pipe because I told him I partied. <laughs> and I was like, what is, you know, it, we had this conversation, like, what is this? And he was like, you said you party, blah, blah, blah. He figured out that I didn't, but offered it to me. He was very attractive. I'm still like, this is where I'm getting my worth from. And so I did it. Smoked and drank this GHB 
which goes hand in hand with meth. And we were together for three days. <laughs> and um, for one, I felt all everything that I've been looking for because I felt attractive, wanted, accepted, and he didn't leave. That's the other part about meeting guys on Grinder is that they would always leave after sex. And he seemed, in my mind, to really like me. Of course, looking back, I know he was really liking the drugs and the fact that we ended up at, back at my place. I was making six figures a year. I had all the disposable income in the world. What else do you want? You know, And I was hooked from then on and chased that first scenario the rest of the time. I immediately just jumped on the bandwagon because I felt like I had finally found the group that I belonged to, not really knowing the effect that it was going to have, obviously, on the rest of my life. For somebody like me who has never taken any drugs, <laughs> I smoked one cigarette in my life and vomited violently afterwards. I am not a big fan of more than the occasional glass of wine. So for someone like me, and without glorifying it, of course, what did your highs on crystal meth do for you? And what was the appeal of consuming drugs other than belonging? I don't have scientific studies to back this up, but crystal meth to me is a very intelligent drug. And it's a drug that feels like it was made specifically for gay men because you lose all shame and inhibitions and you don't feel that impending stories, the story in the back of your mind that you aren't good enough, that you are abnormal. You feel invincible. And it's also opens up this whole sexual world to you. There's a lot of gay men who use it in the clubs, the dance floors, or the bathhouses, or whatever. It makes you very hypersexual, and that's all you think about. And you'll watch hours of pornography. And the allure, the allure for me was the fact of one that I had, you know, I had inhibited that side of myself for so many years. But it was the attention and the fact that anything goes, and you could be your darkest self, and nobody cared. It unleashes the shadow part of you in a way that feels very gratifying. And in the beginning, I was only smoking it. And so the highs weren't all that debilitating in, in the way that I could do it on the weekends and still function in life. I could still do it through the week, even sometimes in function. But the other part of the drug is that it will take your greatest fears and escalate them as well. So that's where the paranoia comes in. You hear a lot about meth is that there's like taping, taping down the window blinds and thinking that you're being watched and things like that. So while it, it draws you in with the sex, once it has you there, then it begins to operate in your neural pathways somehow. And you can tell when I started to be aware You could tell when guys were doing it where their weaknesses were. Is either lack of self-confidence, fear, schizophrenia. You know, there's things that came out that just that the drug escalated. And so for the most part, you're hypersexual, but you don't have sex because everyone's paranoid and people will start to trip out. And there was many, many 
most of the time there wasn't even sex had, but it's just the idea of it. And so the allure for me was the the guys I was attracting too. These were guys that, you know, you, there's a stigma that meth is are people with no teeth and, you know, sores all over their face. But the crowd that I was attracting were men to me that were of a caliber that I never would have got attention of otherwise. But I had, to me, I thought it was me, but it was because I had the drugs. You know, I it, as, as naive as that sounds, it took me a long time to figure out, oh, they're not attracted to me. I have drugs, so they're at my house. When did you directly realize that your habit had turned into an addiction? So my belief, at the time, the kids were with me every other week. And I said to myself, I'm going to use when they're not here and be an adult when they are here. That didn't last long. And so the, the using bled over into while they were in the house. I would be in my room. So when you smoke it, it's pretty much odorless and you can't really tell, right? And that led into every day. And there was a point, there's two points of when I realized this with both kids. One was I was upset and irritated with my son because he wouldn't go to sleep. And I was very ugly with him to make him stay in his room only because I had two guys waiting in my bedroom. Because slowly and surely reasoning went out the window and all I wanted was the sexual experience. The other time was I had been awake for several days and finally passed out. I woke up in a panic. So I would wake up from these binges in such a panic state that I would just run through the house and be completely obnoxious, just not knowing what day it was, what was going on. And I woke up and I ran into my daughter's room and I got her out of bed and I made her crouch down because I thought that people were taking pictures of us outside. I passed it off as a joke to her, as a funny thing, you know, that I had just woke up from a dream or whatever. But I knew that I was slowly kind of becoming one of those guys. And, you know, I started to do my due diligence when I would have men over or go to their house. I would try to ask them questions to figure out if they were one of the ones that had been doing it a long time and were paranoid. And once we started, they would flip a switch or were they newer to it? <laughs> you know, I would try to, because I was somewhere in the middle at that point. And so then I was doing a drug deal at 4 a.m. and having to present to a board of directors at 8 a.m. And I had finished a presentation, which I don't remember. And a, a man that worked there who was also gay took me to the side and he's like, I know that you're using this and I need you to get help or you're going to end up losing this job. Like you just looked ridiculous. <laughs> and I denied it, you know, denied, denied, denied. I was like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not. And you, in my mind, I was passing off as normal, I guess, or whatever, but I was obviously just off the rails. That was another time when I thought, okay, you know, I kept thinking, I've got to get this under control. But then eventually started to lose things like my car. I f would forget to make payments. So the first thing to go was my car. My son was leaving for school when he came back and he's like, dad, your car's gone. 
you know, I was able to get it back, but then ended up losing it again. But I began to miss a lot of days at work. You know, I was getting in trouble at work. All the while, meanwhile, I started using IV intravenously. That's when my life became totally unmanageable. Instead of just losing a thing here and there, you then started to lose everything and even slipped into prostitution to feed and support that growling monster of addiction living within you. How did that come about? I eventually, I, part of it was my performance, but part of it was the, I was working for a law school that went defunct. Marketing was the first to go, but I was on the way out anyway. And um, so then I had a huge severance package. So I was getting all the money I was getting before and didn't have to go to work. And that was such, you know, the, the recipe for disaster when it comes to drugs. And I kept bringing in these guys to live with me that I thought I was in love with. I brought in this guy and he was just broken from years of IV use. Just from the from get-go was, you know, duct taping my curtains down. He had duct tape. He put the TVs down on the floor because he just thought everybody was watching him and things like that. I ended up kicking him out and he walked to the police department and told them that I was using, but also that I was running like a, a date rape type ring from the house. And I believe that he really believed this. So the next day, the police busted in and they arrested me and seized my laptops and things like that. I actually was out of drugs, which is another reason why he left willingly. But there was a shard in my car in the floorboard. And because they found that, they had enough to arrest me. So that was my first arrest. That's again when, you know, now... I was without a job and the prospect of getting another job was out of the question because I had a felony drug arrest on my record. The date rape thing happened as an, you know, that's one of the reasons that they arrested me was accusations of that. So my kids the next day started receiving Snapchats from their friends because my mugshot was on the news, the evening news with the words, date rape arrest underneath. Even though the date rape charges were dropped immediately when they started looking through my laptop and phone because they saw no use, no, no proof, it still was on the news. And my kids, all their friends were Snapchatting pictures of my mugshot. That's when it all came to light with my ex-wife, my family. I had to openly admit to everyone, you know, what was going on. So at that point, that's when it really started going downhill, right? I started to use more. I got a job at a restaurant waiting tables because it's the only thing I could, could get and decided to become a dealer, which did not work out well. Uh, car was repossessed at that point and started to run behind on my everything, all the bills, the, the rent and everything like that. And that's when I somehow met these two other guys who introduced me to the world of shoplifting. And I was so good at shoplifting 
that I became their their guy, right? Because I would dress very professionally as a white man. I literally could go through Walmart and Target, fill the cart up with whatever I wanted and walk out the door. No questions asked to me ever. They had a barcode machine you could with stickers so you could rebarcode things. I didn't even need to do that. I would just leave with it and we would sell it, right? So we would start each day at zero and raise enough money for the drugs we needed for the day and if we wanted to eat some food. And that's how we lived every day. And I was using IV used at that point three times a day just to keep going. It wasn't even for sex anymore. Like the sex, had, it was beyond that now. It was just surviving and it was pure addiction. So then I ended up getting arrested two more times. <laughs> the police at the time in this small town that I lived in, in North Carolina, was targeted me, basically. They knew that I would be using more. And so they followed me to the gas station. They followed me everywhere I went. And finally, I would mess up and have some with me or I would drive high or whatever. And same police officer arrested me each time. And we became on, you know, on a first name basis, pretty much. That's when my, I did begin some sex work too, to get the money for the drugs. I figured out that they were a segment of men on Grindr who would pay for just about anything. There was a time when we would drive into a different city and just put our quote unquote shingle up out on Grindr or Craigslist and raise enough money just by doing sexual acts, sometimes just coming in and cleaning house in your underwear, you know, whatever people would pay for, which was just about anything. We would just raise money that way if, you know, and I could always walk into Walmart and return something or steal something or, or whatever for cash anyway. So that became my life. And there were times when I stole with the kids with me. You know, it was a joke. It was a joke to them. There was a time when it was my son and, and it was, I still had a car. Uh, my son and his friends were with me. I went into the gas station and just stole, just walked out with an armful of food and passed it out. And it was just, they all knew that I stole it. And it was, it seemed cool to them, you know. And it was a, another way for me to get approval. And because, the you know, these guys that I ran around with, they... They were just always just, you know, encouraging me and they loved that I could steal. So I became some kind of hero again. And then we got into fraud, you know, printing our own checks and getting into people's checking accounts and trying to steal identities. I mean, it was just whatever we could do to raise money for that day. All we could see was through that day. And eventually we would sleep. So you live... For the, not even for the next day's high, you live for that day's high. You sell your broken body for money. You steal, you have your kids with you, even during your lowest lows. How did that, all of that, that lifestyle, that hardly ever sleeping, that hardly ever eating, that living just for that substance, how did that affect you physically and emotionally during that time? Well, physically... Obviously, I lost a lot of weight. I was very, very thin. I thought I looked good. <laughs> I was very malnourished, you know. The, the part about it is 
too, is that there were kind of like a unwritten guidelines among the crowd to how to stay healthy. And the key was a lot of hydration. And so I did make sure that I drank a lot of water because I didn't want to lose my teeth. I wanted my skin to keep looking okay. I rubbed Mederma on my arms and my skin all the time. So you, honestly, there was never a time that I remember that I really had track marks or anything that, you know, that made me look like an addict, but I looked very, very thin. And you could tell I was an addict, you know, looking back at the pictures. Emotionally, it's just, you know, you become so numb that you don't really feel anything until you might be coming down. Or if you wake up and you don't have any, your hormones are just way off. You just take a deep dive emotionally. And so the crying and the sobbing and the, you know, just the exaggerated emotions uh, would take over. I, you know, so, but I was never not on something. So I didn't really feel anything. It was just, it would be when I would be awake for more than five days that it would affect me to the point of beyond the drugs because I was, you know, you go without sleep. Sleep deprivation, of course, is going to make you hallucinate. It's going, you know, I would, there was a time when I stood on my back porch in the middle of the night and just saw this huge picnic out of a gathering of people playing volleyball and they were cooking out and they were playing. And I was like, I just stood there. I saw it so plain, you know, and I would see things like that. And just, I became, it got to the point where I just welcomed it. I would be in a, you know, just in public and people, the, the a, a lady's blouse, the designs would be dancing above her. And I would just, I would just like it, you know, because it was just became normal. So, I, I tried to the best that I could, you know, stay healthy, but I, I obviously wasn't. How did friends and family members, especially your kids, how did they handle you during those times when your addiction was completely out of control? Did they try to help you? Did they try to stay away from you? Do you think they could have helped you? So friends-wise, I had built up a group of friends and we would go out together a lot which I was beginning to feel a belonging there to a point. But once I was in the addiction, I stopped showing up to, to, to things. And then when I would show up, I would have a shady character with me and who would end up like totally ruining the evening. So I stopped being invited. <laughs> Many friends just stopped talking to me. I had one that hung on, you know, but then I ended up just pushing him away because I just didn't want to be told anymore to stop. And so then my friends, quote unquote, became the two guys that I was running around with every day. And family wise, my mom was just at arm's length because I kind of gave her as much information as I wanted. But eventually, When I was under eviction, I had no electricity. And she, at that point, was had, had visited. And she came to visit. And there were four other guys just hanging out in the house. It was a mess. And she knew right away what was happening, obviously. And the last thing, one of the last things she did before I was evicted was she paid the electric bill. 
And she says, I'm doing this for the kids, not for you. You know, she stood by me as much as she could, but then that was it there until I was homeless. But my sister, who's actually my aunt, but we're almost the same age too, but we grew up together. She actually helped too much, to be honest. I would call her stranded with a flat tire. You know, I was out doing a drug deal and didn't have any way to fix my car. She fixed it. She would send me money a lot to get me out of whatever jam situation I was in. I called her once in a panic attack. She was in Aruba or somewhere like that. She tried to do everything that she could to help me. But, you know, again, I only contacted her when I needed money. The kids, you know, I, I don't know. I don't remember a lot enough. I just know that they were confused about what was happening with me and they felt bad for me. And they would hug me a lot because I, at the end of when I was being evicted toward the end, I was just in a a mess. Like I, I was so confused that I thought that money was coming somehow, that we were going to write the check or find the money somehow. We were going to embezzle it or something, but I was going to raise the money to get us out of this. And it somehow at the end, I did get a check cashed enough to have movers move my stuff into storage. Somehow I had enough mental fortitude to get that done, but the sheriff had to make me leave because I was so confused and high. I, I couldn't understand that I was being removed from my <laughs> my house. But the thing about the kids, especially my daughter, was that every I went to jail four times. Each time, she would always answer the call. The, the first and second time, my ex-wife would answer, my mom would answer, she would answer. Third and fourth, no one, they were done. You know, no one would answer but my daughter. And the very last time that I went to jail, she was the only one to answer, and she picked me up with my son from jail. And we drove to a park. And at the time, so... I'll backtrack a little bit. Before the last time getting arrested, I was homeless. I was, the the friends that I was hanging out with dropped me because I didn't realize, obviously, I, they were friends with me because I had the house. Well, without the house, what was I? I was still stealing for them, but it wasn't enough. So I was living under this tree for a while. I would roam around, maybe spend the night with somebody here or there. And just in desperation, one day just called my mom and I just said, please, you have to help me. Like, I can't, you know, I can't live. I don't want to, I, I I just imagined myself as any other panhandler. And that's what it was. And when the thought crossed my mind to make a sign and stand at the corner, I was like, this is my rock bottom. So she immediately drove from West Virginia and picked me up. And um, when she got there, I fought her. I didn't want to go, even though I had called her. And we had this screaming match, and she finally, for the first time, I think ever, I saw my mom really break down and cry in this hopelessness. And that was enough for me. I I just crawled into her car, and I curled up in a ball, and I went to sleep. You know, who knows how long I'd been awake or whatever. So she drove me to West Virginia and put me up in her trailer that she was had for sale. She wasn't living in it at the time. And so I got a job and I started to find my way back into myself a little bit. 
my kids at the time, this was before the last time I was in jail, actually my daughter wasn't speaking to me because I wrote a bad check on her account. And she went to the mall with friends and couldn't buy what she needed because her bank account was overdrawn because of me. So she wasn't speaking to me for a while while I was in West Virginia, rightly so. But meanwhile, while I was gone, their mom met a man and basically they were abandoned in an apartment. And so toward the end of my stay in West Virginia, I started getting back into drugs somewhat and decided a friend of mine decided we would drive back to Charlotte. My old friends were saying, hey, come back. We've got these hotel rooms and blah, blah, blah. So I went back to Charlotte. I used the stuff that they had, the the meth that they had purchased from Mexico. (laughs) This was some kind of pure, like, breaking bad stuff. Blew my my head off. Like, I lost all composure. Whatever was in it, just, I, I was totally confused. I didn't know what city I was in. They eventually, I was so obnoxious and, I guess, out of hand that they threw me out of the car and I roamed around Charlotte thinking I was in Roanoke, Virginia or something. Like I was looking around, I didn't know, and I saw a cop car. And out of desperation, I just walked up and turned myself in. So that was the last time I was arrested. And that's when, even after all of that, my daughter answered the phone. So you're asking about how my kids, my kids supported me because at my very core, through all of that, I was still a good dad. And they knew that. And so when they took me to this park, my daughter says to me, you know, mom's with this guy. We need a parent and we need you. And we want you to decide, you know, which is, what is it going to be? Is it going to be this drug or is it going to be us? And I had nothing, you know, I had nothing and nowhere to go. And my kid's standing in front of me, begging me to be their father. So that's when I made the decision to be sober. I want to circle back a little bit before that moment, because there were many times when we, when you were not just on the ground. I think it's fair to say that you had already come very close to digging your own grave into that ground. Can you tell us about the cycles of recovery and relapse that you experienced and how you handled those very heartbreaking relapses and what your advice would be for those in recovery slash relapse right now and to those trying to do their best to support such a person in a meaningful way? So I did have many, many relapses. And one defining moment where I got, I was sober for six months was when I contracted HIV. Actually, it was the very first time I used the needle. And it was either the needle or it was him. But after we had had sex, he said, sorry, He said, congratulations, you have AIDS. And um, so obviously I knew right away or thought that I knew. And then it wasn't probably two weeks when I started exhibiting the symptoms. Really tired and worn down and, and, and that kind of thing. So when I found out that that was HIV positive, there was enough you know, I could have went either way. And some people, when they find out, they go on, a, you know, they go, they spiral downward because what's left to live for. I went the other way and, just, you know, just took it as a, a way to get my attention to get sober. And so I was sober for, like I said, six months. 
but getting on make medication and feeling fine, you know, I mean, the medication that we have now is, you know, I, I forget that I even have it sometimes because you, I just take a pill with my vitamins in the morning, you know, so anyway, feeling better about feeling better and feeling good and, and, and then, you know, getting back into the same narrative and the same beliefs, I would, I would relapse. And the, what the advice that I give and, and what I, I, you know, would have given myself is to not have the expectation that it's either or, that you have to be completely abstinent and that's the goal. And once you use, you're done for. Because that kind of thinking will set you up for failure every time. So when you relapse, it's not the end. It's it's not a stumbling block. It's a it's a step a stepping stone. It's 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 a, a way to reset, figure out what went wrong, what triggered what you know, backtrack, what triggered you, re- resolve and, and and openly talk to people about it. And know that it's part of the journey. It's not ending. It, it doesn't end there and start there. It's part of it. And I think, you know, we we glorify how many days people are sober and we, you know, we we glorify the milestones. But what we need to realize is that when you make the decision that I want to be sober, you're sending that signal out to the universe that that's when your sobriety starts. And you may relapse many, many times for many years, but it's all part of it because you're moving a momentum that's been built up for years. I mean, everything that happened to me my entire life built up to using. So it the momentum of that can't be changed in just deciding one day. It You're going to relapse. It's part of it. But we don't have it set up that way. We have it set up as it's abstinence only. So I wish someone had said that to me. I didn't know anything, you know. And so that that's the advice that I would give. And when I, at the, the last time I was arrested, when I wanted, you know, I finally went to a public defender and said, what can I do here? You know, I had all the charges, but I had never been I never showed up to court, so I'd never actually been charged with anything. So I found out about drug treatment court. And drug treatment court is, you know, it they make you jump through hoops and they test you, drug test you four or five times a week and you have to go to rehab. And if you make it through, it's about 18 months, then your charges will be dismissed. And that's what I enrolled in immediately. I was homeless still at the time. Uh, the kids would sneak me into that apartment they were left in. And eventually I moved into that apartment. You know, I would, I was in outpatient treatment for rehab. So rehab was eight to 1230. And then I would go downtown to the courthouse and take a drug test. And then I would go and wait tables. And that was my day. Very stressful, very much a time when I needed support. And I didn't find that in the NA program, the Narcotics Anonymous. I, I didn't find it there. I didn't really know where to find it. And that's the thing that I want to help or what to tell people is that those initial days, those initial months, you have no idea who you are at all. And the only thing you know is to use to try to escape that. 
so that's what that's um, what my life was like at first. We have to talk about that image of the decaying tree because reading that really broke me. Can you share some more about that and also about you finally managing to stay in recovery? You mentioned that your children ignited that. How did you manage to stay in recovery and how hard was that for you? So I will admit in the beginning, I only stayed sober because I was in the drug addiction program, the, the drug treatment program. Um, it made me stay sober. And there was a lot against me. There was a time, so strange, I was walking to my job and stopped in a different restaurant to use the bathroom. So I'm in the stall and I put my phone on the, the toilet paper dispenser and it fell in behind. So I reached in to get my phone and pull out a needle already full of mess. How, what are the chances? And I stared and I stared and I stared at it. And, you know, I, I finally actually dropped it in the trash can. And I just think it was one of those moments where I'm asking myself, what do you really want? You know, and then I was addicted. I put everything to the side and focus solely on rebuilding. I became addicted to rebuilding my life. That's when, you know, I, the kids, all of my belongings were in that storage unit. They were set to be um, auctioned off. I needed a place to stay, to live for the kids and I. I had an eviction on my record and four felony arrests. Who's going to rent to me? So I had to find an individual property owner. And of course, with the risk, I had to supply a double deposit, first month's rent, get my belongings out of storage, and establish a, 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 sta a stable life for us again. And that's what I became addicted to. Because I always, it was the same thing as when I was working on my degrees and when I was working on this and when I was devoting my life to the kids, I had to have something else to numb out what I really needed to pay attention to. And you mentioned prostitution. I did go back into sex work in the very beginning because I knew how much money I could make. And I was on Craigslist trying to find a place for us to live. And randomly a massage table came up and it went from there. But in the three months of doing that, I raised all the money I needed and was able to get us into the house, all my belongings out of storage, had the move, movers move them in, and we were back on track. And I had a new job. It was still waiting tables, but because my, my charges were eventually dismissed, but then I had to get them expunged, which takes a while. So I was, but I was making really good money at this restaurant stopped all the prostitution stuff. And then was the deciding point because life was normal again. And I was faced with the real demons and the stories and everything that had led me to drugs in the first place. They, I could hear them again. And there was a day when I walked to the kitchen and their sink was full of dishes. And I started to wash the dishes and this whole feeling came over me like, this is boring. This is life again. I don't have a goal now. Like, you know, I don't 
have anything to distract me. And so my initial reaction was I looked at my phone and I thought I can still get stuff. You know, I can still use. I can probably, you know, I started taking, is the whole, the whole old rational voice of, you know, you can still use a little bit. You can still probably, you're, you're at a point now where you know what it's like to lose everything. So there's no way you'll go back to that. You know, just trying to talk myself into it. But it became so scary at that moment that I, I ran outside. And I just ran outside and I'm hyperventilating and I'm just, I knew that this was another big deciding point. Which way was I going to go? And that's when I saw the decaying tree and this almost audible voice says to me, and I, I realize it and I came to realization when I'm looking at it, is that you have to become as this tree. You have to die to everything you know about yourself has to die to become something new. You know, because I saw the mushrooms growing out of it, the, the, you know, the grass, and eventually it would become, you know, other things. And so at that moment, I grabbed my phone and I immediately deleted any contact or anyone that I, I knew that would get me to drugs. You know, any of the old people that I knew deleted, you know, I was still off and on with Grinder. And but I knew Grinder was the gateway to finding drugs. I mean, you can get on Grinder anywhere in this country at any time and find crystal meth. I, I can guarantee you that. And so I deleted all that. And I took it very literally at the time that I needed to die to everything that I knew about myself. And I started on the outer ancillary layers, the superficial ways of okay. What do I need to change? My sleeping habits, ex start exercising. What, you know, what are some things, what are the complete opposite? You know, what I came to realize over the years is that past the superficial personality traits and habits, what I needed to kill all the distorted beliefs that I had about myself and the distortion, the distorted narrative that I was always running in the back of my mind that I don't belong anywhere. And that's what needed to die. But I had to go through layer after layer after layer first. And like I said, the momentum was built up so much that it has taken now almost five years for me to peel back you know, enough layers that I, I get it now what that message was about, that everything I believed about myself was not true. And the perception and the lenses that I saw the world through were not true. They were distortions. And there were distortions created back when I was pretending to be on that stage and the distortion to say, you're not normal. And through a lot of meditation and all kinds of other routes that I could talk about, I there have been situations and scenarios that have come back up for me. And one was I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight. And my dad promised my brother and I that we were going to go camping. And like I said, um, he always invited his brother along everywhere we went because he was the son that he wanted. It was the message that I got. And so for weeks, I was excited about this camping trip. It was just going to be the three of us. And I had in my mind what it was going to be like. 
And so we get in the truck. Where back then, you know, kids ran. We rode in the back of a of a pickup truck, and we take off. And he stops at his brother's and picks his another brother up. It was an older brother, wasn't the one that I had spoke of, but it was another brother who had several cases of beer with him. And I sat in the back of that truck, and it just something died that day. And and then to top it off, he turns around and just kind of smirks at me. And I just remember staring into the wind as the truck was going. And that's, and I promised myself I was going to be everything that he wasn't. And that's when I really dove into the church life and into my mom, because I was trying to run from what he was. And that evening became the exact opposite of what I wanted because it ended up around the campfire. They were drunk and he had my brother on his lap and he was saying, you know, he was singing this like perverted song and I had to go get my brother out of his arms, take him to the tent, you know, and we went to sleep. And so realizing what that did to me made so much sense about every trigger and activation that I've had since because the message was, I'm going to be interested in you, but I'm going to leave you. And you don't belong with me. And I, it just like came on me like a, like a, like a, I don't know, some kind of bright light that I was like, this is the, this is the same scenario that's played out throughout the years. It's these, that's why, you know, I was so stuck in this cycle with the drug is that they acted like they liked me, but they would leave me. And even to the point of, I would get so triggered by people, and not just romantically, but professionally even, who acted like they were interested in me, but then would leave me on read, quote unquote. Like they would read my message and not read it and not answer, or read my text and not answer or whatever. And I never knew why that was so serious to me. Why would I, I would go off the rails when somebody would do that. And I realized that little boy is still in there feeling that feeling. And that's what it feels like when somebody even just reads a text and doesn't answer me that I, I'm not good enough. And that's the, that's the underlying message that I am not good enough. And it, started it was many instances but those two that i mentioned and especially the camping trip was that that was that's when it was etched into my young little brain that i am not good enough and that's what led that's what i had to heal and start to heal it wasn't the getting rid of the drugs getting rid of, you know getting rid of the substance was the easy part that's that's not as hard as facing that. And, and so I've, I keep going back to that little boy, you know, and hold him. And then I go through and imagine what that evening could have been like. Sorry. Your life has been a hard pill to swallow. And... I know we cannot go back in time and we cannot undo anything that happened to that little boy. What we can do is 
take the lessons you have learned now, the lessons you you paid a lot of life energy and lifetime for, the lessons that your children sacrificed for, that a lot of people around you sacrificed for, for you to learn those lessons. If you had the ability to talk to that little boy you just described, coming from your 46-year-old self, what would you tell that little boy? I would tell him, and I have been on a regular basis, first of all, that you're normal, that you don't need to hide anything and feel free to express yourself, but moreover, that you're safe. You're safe and you belong. Somehow I would express that belonging and connection and acceptance is not going to be found or can it be trusted from anyone or anything outside of yourself. You have to find it first inside yourself. Accept yourself and accept who you are. Belong to yourself first. And when that happens, you'll begin to attract others who accept you. And you won't have to depend on other people for the, you know, through the, you don't have to go through the rise and the fall of other people's actions. Always going to be disappointing because, listen, everyone else is in their own world. So when we depend on other people to help us feel whole, it's never going to work. And I would, I would just hold him and, you know, give him an outlet. That's the, the thing is, is that I never had an outlet either. I couldn't go to my mom and I had no one to talk to about these things. And so it, it became a habit and an ingrained behavior for me to compartmentalize and work on other things. And this kind of ADD type behavior is what made me be married, but devote myself to them and my career and my degrees instead of focusing on what I was really feeling. That became my instinctual behavior and um, my algorithm per se. So if I could, I would give him some type of outlet to be able to talk about these things openly and not feel judged. What is your life like today? How is your family? I know you're doing a lot to help others struggling with addiction. How do you do that? So life today is very different in that I'm always you know, on this path of awareness <laughs> because everything can be broken down into layer after layer after layer. And now that I've become and I've observed kind of where a lot of my behaviors stem from, it's moving on from that. You know, it's not as much the why anymore. Why am I like this? It's how, what do I do with it? And how do I move forward with that knowledge? There's a lot of meditation that I do, a lot of spiritual spiritual seeking. I don't know if that's really what I want to say, but there's just a, a sense of empathy and compassion. And I have really feel like that I have instilled that into my kids. The three of us have, through this whole thing, 
become extremely close. One thing that I promised them after I came out, you know, that what I think affected them more than anything about me coming out is they felt lied to. And so we have this honesty pact and we share everything with with one another. And we've become really three best friends. And I'm just very happy with how they've turned out. Very happy with how they've turned out. And with my daughter, I have really tried to allow her now to live her life without being a parent. She was a parent to me and to my ex-wife for a long time. She grew up too fast. But with my son, I have tried to help him with anxiety because through the whole process of uh, me leaving twice and then his mom leaving and that thing and thing, he had some abandonment issues and some anxiety issues. And we worked through those. And so I think that the three of us work together to get better and, uh, and be better people for one another. And, you know, relationships with my mom's totally great. My sister, I've, I've made a new set of friends, a spiritual community where I feel very supported and totally open to be whoever I am and whatever I am um, without any type of judgment, which is nice too. And so I've rebuilt the external as well, but I really focused on continuing to rebuild in, inside and questioning with authentic love why is this activating you you know this why is this particular thing giving you an emotion that's a negative emotion like fear or resentment or anger and really dissecting that and just getting closer and closer to wholeness every day and and so i did I did begin, I was already coaching a lot. So when I when I came out with this story on social media, there's been an onslaught of gay men messaging me saying, thank you, because there's such a stigma about crystal meth. And many men are just so uh, afraid and and they're, they don't feel comfortable sharing this information in a public space. And I have been very open with all of it, my whole journey here. And so a lot of men have come to me, and even if it's just to say, I thank you for sharing that because now I don't feel alone. There's somebody else out there who went through the same thing, and and I, I, I feel connected to someone, you know. And so I uh, became a recovery coach, sober coach. And the thing is about that, there's gay, a gay man who's been addicted to meth needs to be identified with on that level. And someone who's been there really can be the only person who can identify with them on that level and know exactly what it feels like and what the thought processes and behaviors are. And so I'm talking and, and coaching men who are past the addiction or still relapsing once in a while, but they're desperately trying to acclimate into normal life. One thing that 
crystal meth does is totally rewire your idea of sex and intimacy and your hormones. And you have to relearn what it's like to have sex without it being charged up. And it's, it's a long process. Again, stopping the substance is the first part, but getting back into your body and trying to be intimate with someone and understanding that sober sex can be just as erotic and actually better than than chem sex that's a long process and many men end up with erectile dysfunction or addiction to porn and you know there's a sex addiction I mean, there's so much that you have to work through after that so i just want to dedicate my life to helping not just gay men with with addiction issues, anyone with addiction problems, but specifically because it's an epidemic in the gay community. And if you don't think it exists around you, you're just, you're, you're naive. It's everywhere and it's growing fast because again, it plays to a traumatized group of people. These gay men are traumatized there's, a, there's so much trauma and so much shame, and this drug takes it all away. So it's perfect for this, this group of men, this group of, of particular demographics. And so there's not enough attention on it. There's not enough awareness of it, and I'd like to change that. And I really would like to work with younger men as well, because when you get into it in your early 20s, you've got all that time. It's the, the older, the older seasoned gentlemen like me, they get into it and they lose everything, but you've already, you already have a foundation established and it's a little bit easier to bounce back. But when you start at young and you go through your twenties, it not, it, it ravages your brain. And what do you have? You don't have a foundation to get back to. And they're just, I've seen the light go out in so many young men's eyes they just they're like a zombie and i just if i can change just one person's trajectory then i want to do that if anybody out there wants to get in touch with you either because they would like to get help they would like to further the conversation they know somebody who is going through similar struggles how can they get in touch with you you can find me on facebook it's my handle is my first and last name, Dallas Bragg, D-A-L-L-A-S-B-R-A-G-G. I am on Instagram. It's Dr. Dallas Bragg, Dr. Dallas Bragg. You can find me there, those places, and, and get in touch with me. Thank you so, so, so very much for speaking with me today, Dallas. As human beings, we are so quick to judge others, especially those already struggling so very much with self-worth, addiction, self-love. I hope your story is an eye-opener to many as to how we can be more supportive by learning to better understand what others are really going through. If our listeners have questions for you, would you be willing to come back and meet with me again? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I would be happy to do that. What a brave, strong, and incredibly courageous person Dallas is. Thoughtvolutionists, I'm deeply honored and humbled that he chose our little podcast to share his powerful story. All Dallas ever really longed for was to feel wanted, valid, and seen. Well, he most certainly belongs to our little Thoughtvolution community now, where we meet each other with love, care, and kindness, 
where everyone is welcome, valued, and accepted for who they are. You know, at the end of the day, something I see in every single guest I have on this show is that each of them has that human desire to be loved and considered quote-unquote normal just the way they are. We all want that. Remember a few weeks ago, I asked you to send me your letters to yourself. That request is still ongoing, so please send me what will hopefully be a whole lot of love letters to yourself so I can share some of them with our audience on a future episode. To get in touch with me, either to send me those letters or to ask follow-up questions for Dallas or any other guest of this podcast, or to become a guest yourself, please go to thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. You can also call us at 864-501-5033. That is 864-501-5033. We can be found on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube as Thoughtvolution. So like us everywhere you can to boost this special podcast over the top for the whole world to see. On that note, I have a favor to ask. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and as I mentioned, also on YouTube. And in order for this podcast to grow, we of course need your hearts and ears to listen. But we also need your fingers to rate, review, comment, and subscribe. So perhaps take a minute today and do just that. And tell your friends, share this podcast on your own social media. Let everyone you know find out why Thoughtvolution has such a special place in your heart. It really means the world to me and to all of my guests. In addition to all of that, if you have the means to support our podcast financially, please check out our merch store, that can be found on our website, thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. There are really awesome shirts, hoodies, and hats designed by yours truly. I've decided to wear the Story Sharer hoodie today, and I love it. So check it out. Perhaps there's something you really like. I appreciate it. And as always, I appreciate you. You being here and taking the time to just listen and evolve. Together we can and will make a difference. Anyway, my dear Thought Evolutionists, I'll see you back here in exactly one week. Until then, be kind to each other and remember that I love you all so, so, so very much. And I'll see you then.